Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, The Uncharted Isle by Clark Ashton Smith, first published in Weird Tales, November 1930. Uh, this this story was apparently written in one day, in uh, April, I think, of 1930. And uh, I think it's pretty special. And also, um, it's uh, nothing happens in it. <laughs> <laughs> one of the criticisms I read, it, or maybe just compliments, rather than a criticism I read about it, is nothing happens in it. And that's okay. Um, I like I like the story a lot. Well, uh, I don't remember having read the story previously, although I read a lot of Clark Ashton Smith decades ago when I was a youngster. Uh, but this one, if I read it, didn't didn't stay with me, maybe because mm-hmm. nothing happens. So I guess mm-hmm. what I'd ask you to do to get us started, Jesse, because uh, now I tell you, I do like it. Could you mm-hmm. give us a, a summary of the, the story that doesn't happen? <laughs> and sure. then once you've told us what's not happening um how come you like it so much sure um it starts with a sailor who uh, finds himself uh in a i want to say rowboat but it just says boat so uh, a ship's um lifeboat is what i'm thinking uh after his ship has unfortunately caught fire and uh the crew has abandoned it uh, the other members of the crew who were with him in the boat originally have abandoned it and uh, have disappeared. And he is alone in the boat with no oars. He finds himself uh, in a half uh, hallucinogenic state um, due to deprivation of water and food. Uh, but luckily, there's a strange island nearby. He rows ashore. uh drinks from some sweet water, eats some strange but delicious fruit, and explores the island. He finds that the island's covered with um, strange vegetation, a very strange people, uh, strange structures, and even the sky is unfamiliar, with the sun being in the wrong position for where he thinks he is in the Pacific Ocean, and the night sky showing different constellations. When he tries to interact with the people on the island, they are far too busy, it seems, uh, to even notice his presence. He can touch them, but they don't seem to react to his presence. It's almost as if they're shunning him, but there's no malice there. They're much too busy working on uh, some problem that they're having. He witnesses a terrible event at a temple, and uh, finds himself again at adrift in the ocean, having earlier supplied his uh, vessel with um, two oars uh, of exquisite design and a couple of jars of also intricate uh, uh, workmanship. And uh, when he finds himself uh, again after a a spell of um, uh, drifting out of consciousness, he finds himself again on a ship. they are curious as to what happened to him and where he got the wonderful oars and jars. And that's the story. Hmm. Did I miss any uh, significant bits? I would not have... Uh, I, I don't know that I would have summarized it the way you did. Um, 
for instance, um, you're saying that the people our narrator observes um, take no notice of him as if they were shunning him. Uh, I, I think that that might be sort of accurate if you're using shunning the way the Amish do. Yes, uh, I, I see. Uh, but what came to my mind was Wells's story, the Platner story, in which hmm. someone um, is, as a consequence of a chemical explosion, blown into another realm right. in which he actually is able to walk right through people. Mm-hmm. Um and I didn't think of this as shunning so much as I thought of them being absolutely um, two different worlds interpenetrating. Yeah, I, I agree with uh, the Platner story idea is it's close, but he's not a ghost. He, he tugs on the arm, uh, on the clothing of, of people there. And it's not I don't I don't think they can see him. It's not that they're choosing not to. I don't think they can see him. It's almost like he's. He's there, and he's subject to their their physics, but they're not able to perceive him under their physics. Well, that raises a really interesting question, because it's a first-person narrative. Um, he says that he tugs on their clothing, but he doesn't say that they react to being tugged on. That's right. He says that he eats the fruit. But of course, you know, fruit doesn't react when you eat it. Um, he says that he thinks that he may even have, in the in the... In the unaccountably long time, he has no idea how long he's been there. Um, but he talks about walking in and out of their houses to get whatever he wants. Uh, he mm-hmm. sleeps under the stars mostly, but he thinks at one point that maybe I did sleep on somebody's couch, but nobody took any notice of me. And you have mm-hmm. to really begin to wonder whether or not there are, in fact, any people there. Or is there a there there? Is this whole thing yeah. a hallucination? At one point in the story, he says... The easiest explanation is that this is all delirium. And the only reason it wouldn't be the right explanation is that these two things, the jars and the uh, and the oars. Um, mm-hmm. But in fact, do we know that the jars and the oars really are there at all? Mm-hmm. Maybe the whole thing really is a hallucination. Yeah, and I think that that makes the story all the richer. I, I found myself, after about halfway through the story the first time, saying... This is a story about reading stories <laughs> because we can spend some time with these characters um, and we can sort of interact with them on the page, but ultimately they can't pay attention to us. I, I think that's a terrifically smart way to look at it. Um, I think that the uncharted aisle, that is the title, suggests that what is special here is that this is a a realm that is not previously known and does not have the authority behind it of earlier witnesses. Mm. Um, it, it's as if to have something recorded is to grant it a kind of reality. And if it's not there, why then it can't be real. And that, in fact, is what the people on the rescuing ship tell him you can't have gone there. There there's no Island there. We know that because there's no islands on the map. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing is true with what we read in a story. If, if unless something is written, it's not true, but then the converse becomes, well, you see it is written. And so it's true. 
In other words, I, Mark Irwin, the first person narrator, who says, you know, I, when I awoke, I was so delirious, I didn't, uh, I didn't remember anything. I couldn't. But of course, I did remember that I am Mark Irwin. Really? You needed to say that? Um, there, the whole story can be looked at in one way. Uh, as you say, it's a story about reading stories, but perhaps more um, deeply, it's a story about the authority behind representation. If we tell a story, does that mean the world we tell it, uh, tell it about has become real? If we draw a map and put an island on it, does that mean mm. there's an island there? Well, of course not. And yet, if you don't have the island there, could that in any more can that any more tell us that there is no island there? So, if the absence of the island on the map can't mean that there's no island, could the presence of the island on the map mean there is an island? If we've never heard of these people, but he writes a story, is he putting them on the verbal map and making them exist? Do stories create realities? Mm-hmm. I think they do. Uh, one of the the clues that this this story is is very much doing that is some of the things that appear, uh, some of the sort of cast off mentions of of places. The, the the one place in that that isn't mentioned in here is Atlantis, right? And that's the first one I thought of. This uncharted isle um, it seems to be. Uh, at first, I thought it was. Uh, possible that it was f- far in the future, but I don't think so. The sun is brighter, the stars are different, um, but the continents are all in one, except for one isle, so one uncharted isle, right, at the bottom of their maps. Um, I think this is su- supposed to be Earth a million years ago, or something like it. And mention we get in this story is of Lemuria, one of those. Uh, sunken continents that is so popular in the fiction of the 1930s. Right. It's 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 uh this is a story of uh a lost world uh with a modern uh sailor coming across a place that can't exist in a way that the only way it could, right? He it's like it's it's very much like the reading experience. You you're in the world, then you sit down and you read a story about another world, and then you're back in our world again. And if you're reading it in a pulp science fiction magazine or a pulp uh, pulp magazine at all, um, you could imagine a sailor on a freighter going across the southern Pacific Ocean, um, reading a story about the uncharted isle, and then coming out of that story and going back to his life and saying, well, what do I have that says that that world is true well i have this document right sure. <laughs> this document of course atlantis um as plato describes the myth um re- recounts the myth um is just on the other side of the pillars of hercules so it's in the atlantic ocean atlantis atlantic um but lemuria is depending upon which text you're reading is either in the Indian Ocean or the Pacific Ocean, which of course run into each other. And Mu or Mu, I don't know how one pronounces mm-hmm. it in this instance, um, is another sunken continent uh, myth um, that is definitely in the Pacific. So the fact that uh, this takes place in the Pacific uh, seems to me to warrant references to Mu or Mu and Lemuria 
not to Atlantis. Uh, but there are other reasons to see the Pacific as being significant. In 1930, the Atlantic has been charted more thoroughly than the Pacific, which is, after all, much larger. There's something else going on, though, and we find out about it in the very beginning when he tells us that he knows that he is somewhere southwest of Easter Island. Mm -hmm. um, Easter Island, and, and there are no islands there, but he, why not tell us that you're southwest of some other place that we know about, like Ecuador? But no, he mm -hmm. picks Easter Island. Well, Easter Island is known, of course, for those strange heads, those, mm -hmm. right? And it's named Easter. Well, Easter is a holiday uh, for a god of the Western world who dies and is reborn. Um, you can read this story as a, a series of deaths and rebirths. Um, it opens with a paragraph. Um, I do not know how long I had been adrift in the boat. Uh, uh, but um, there are several days and nights that I remember only as alternate blanks of grayness and darkness. It sounds an awful lot as if um, our, our speaker has just come out of who knows where, floating mm -hmm. around in grayness and darkness. Well, one way to look at this is as if he is being born. Yep. And what we don't know is what killed him to begin with or what what knocked him out why is he delirious um, he gives us the story about the about the fire um, then on that very first page i looked around and saw that the boat was drifting because he has no oars to begin with the the boat was drifting rapidly in the wash of a shoreward current between two low-lying darkish reefs half hidden by flying veils of foam Mm -hmm. uh, two things come to me uh, about this. First of all, having the current pull you toward a veil of foam lets me know that this fellow has been reading Poe. Mm -hmm. This is the end of the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, mm -hmm. which just breaks off with the sound of the cataract um, that, you know, who knows what will happen to Pym. And loads of people have, have tried to write sequels, including Jules Verne. Um, the second thing is visually – I looked around and saw the boat drifting between two low-lying darkish reefs, half hidden by flying veils of foam, and he's being pulled shoreward. In other words, the, the, the water is getting more powerful as you go toward the shore. In other words, he is moving toward a V that ends in the direction he's going. The apex is where he's going. Or not mm -hmm. to put too fine a point on it, a Freudian reading of this would tell us that this is a womb return. And indeed, he gets back to an island that is almost Edenic. Why, the fruits were strange, n unknown to anyone in the whole world. How he could know all of this beats me, that no mm -hmm. one has ever seen such a fruit. But he sees it and decides that it's probably worth a chance and son of a gun. He finds that it's helpful. He goes to a place where even when he bothers people, they don't bother him back. He is in an ideal Edenic world. So first he he is reborn from something, then he has this womb return, and then after seeing something which he does not describe, he leaves 
and then is reborn again. He's delirious. In fact, the thing he doesn't describe is the one child. There's only one child among all the people he sees on this place. It's only one child. And there is this, uh, what he takes to be at first, a, a monstrous anthropomorphic gorilla-like um, icon, a statue. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that it, in fact, moves. It's alive. And that one child is offered to it. It begins to move its knife-taloned hands toward the child, and that's when our narrator blacks out again. Mm-hmm. So, dot, dot, dot. Right? Exactly. So he doesn't see the sacrifice of the child. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But um, in his mind, there is a sacrifice of a child. And the idea that someone would voluntarily allow this death is so repulsive, is so overpowering that our narrator stops being able to to have any memory of it. Well, I would like to suggest uh, a strange reading here. Okay. Okay. I think going back to where we began with this is a story about reading stories. Mm-hmm. There is a conflict between two different ways of looking at the world that runs throughout all of this. It's a conflict between the knowledge that we have directly ourselves. I I see the glass of water by my hand and the knowledge that we have because we have been told that we are getting it, it from sources that are to be relied upon. These sources representing the world. So I've never been to Russia, but I believe it exists. And I think Moscow is its capital. Um, Mm -hmm. If I were to have a feeling that Kiev is its capital, um, you would tell me, uh, no, uh, Ukraine is, at least that part of Ukraine, is independent of Russia. And besides, so it might have been the capital and in fact was the capital when Russia was first founded back before, you know, the year eight, you know, around 800 or whenever it was. I'm sorry that I've got that history so vaguely. But the first, the first, uh, leader Rizars used Kiev as their capital and Russia spread out from there. So, oh, you're going back through time? That's what mm-hmm. it is. Well, how can I see back in time? I can't, but I can make things up. I think in, in reality, there is, that is in, in the lives that people experience for themselves, I do, and I'm willing to assert you do, there is a conflict between what we we think we see and what we think we feel, perceive, and what we are supposed to believe is really out there, is really the nature of the world. And that's captured in the conflict between trusting the charts or not trusting the charts. Mm-hmm. The people that he sees on this island, are he sees them constantly looking at charts and astrolabes and amillaries and other armillaries and other things that could be used to locate yourself in space and so on. And, and, and they're, they're puzzled. They're clearly puzzled. So that conflict is there throughout. One of the ways to resolve the conflict is by faith. So this guy, this guy is past Easter Island. And he's to the West, which might be a place to go, I suppose, for the New World, if you're a European, but it is, in fact, the place of sunset. 
It's the place of a kind of darkening and death. The, the, the West is where things end. You know, sunrise is comes from the East. And when he says, I couldn't orient myself, he couldn't tell where the East was. And yet he knows absolutely that he's in the West. When he finally gets through all of this experience and is drifting and will is about to be picked up by a boat that will rescue him. He looks up, the stars are familiar, he's below the equator, and he thanks the heavens for mm-hmm. the Southern Cross. So there is a level in this story in which it is suggested, I have no idea whether or not Smith had this in his mind consciously or not, but it's suggested that if you want to be reborn having gone past Easter, what you need is to have the grace of the cross descend upon you. Now, why the grace? And here's where I'm getting Jesse to a place that I think um, will make people think, uh, no, there goes Eric again. He's weird. Um, There is that the question of the rowboat, right? Mm -hmm. The rowboat. And what we find about the rowboat is, let me see if I can find find the line. Um, he's there. A, a number of boats make it away, according if we can believe Mark Irwin, make it away from the uh, the burning ship. Um, there were three of them, and two of them were lost. And in the third, which was manned by Captain Melville, yeah. Okay. Um, we can talk for for a bit about which books of Melville are in the background here. Mm-hmm. The th- was manned by Captain Melville, the second mate, the bosun, and myself. So there are four people in the third boat. But sometime during the storm, and I haven't left out any sentences here, but sometime during the storm or during the days and nights of delirium that followed, my companions must have gone overboard. This much, dot, dot, dot. This Mm -hmm. much I recalled, but all of it was somehow unreal and remote and seemed to pertain only to another person than the one who was floating shoreward on the waters of a still lagoon. In other words, somebody else was involved in the depopulation of that boat, Mm -hmm. not me. So I would like to suggest a very simple interpretation. I don't mean to say that this excludes other ways of looking at the story. Let's say that we got a guy who grew up in the Christian West, whether he's devout or not is irrelevant, but he knows what you're supposed to do and not supposed to do. Two boats have already been lost and there we're down to four guys and you're floating and floating and you can't drink seawater, although we know that he did because he tells us that in the first paragraph and the horribleness of the seawater forces him to, to throw up. Right. But it, at least there's some water involved that sustains him. If you drink too much, it would just drive you mad and kill you. Right. Floating alone. How did he survive? Well, maybe three of them decided to gang up on the fourth and suck a little blood. And then two of them decided to gang up on the third and suck a little blood. And then of the two, Mark Irwin succeeded in killing the second. And he can remember none of it and knows how long he was out. So I would like to suggest that he cannot allow himself to believe what has happened to him, what he has done. You know, that that terrible sense of not knowing whether to trust yourself or what's in the map. 
to, to trust the words that someone tells you or your perceptions. This is a common phenomenon, right? This is, this is a spouse not believing that the other spouse is cheating because that, that person couldn't cheat. And, and you throw away the evidence as, as not fitting the interpretation. Or quite commonly, as we know from the five stages of, of grief, people hear that someone has died and they deny it. No, that can't be true. That person can't be dead. Right? They just, you know, I'm looking at the corpse and shaking it. Right? It's dead, mm. but you shake it. Right? That sense that this can't be the case, a sense that occurs, for example, whenever there's deja vu. Wait a minute, I know this is the first time. How can it feel like the second? That mm -hmm. sense of cognitive dissonance is not uncommon. And we rely on it sometimes in order to be able to move out of a world we don't want into a world of faith. And one way to read this story is to suggest that the cognitive dissonance between finding a place, although it's uncharted, is just like having faith in heaven, although we cannot see it. It's just like being able to suppress our feelings enough that we're able to then say, this didn't happen. Rather, this other thing happened. I went to an island and they, they were going to sacrifice a child, but I have such a tender heart that I could remember none of it. And when I finally woke up, they found me and they said none of it was true, except, except for the oars and the, and the jars. And guess what? We have no evidence whatsoever that anybody saw those oars and jars, except the narrator telling us that they saw those oars and jars. I think this is actually a superb story. Mm -hmm. Because although nothing happens in terms of clear, obvious plot, what really happens is, I think, an extraordinary examination of how in moments of extremity, like your ship has just burned on the, in the Pacific and your life is at stake, in mo moments of extremity, we can resort to fantasy so strongly that we let it substitute for reality. We take the language for the thing because we can't have the thing. And that's why Smith writes with this amazing vocabulary, yeah. using incredible words that most people would never know, just to let us know there is yet another world of more extraordinary words. And he constructs it in this story. Yeah, he's he's a master wordsmith, is Smith. <laughs> um, there's a, a number of passages that uh, I highlighted in my readings over and over of this story, and I I think they they sort of reinforce all the points you've you've made. One of the one of the ones that's early on is on the second page. It's a paragraph starting. I got out of the boat feeling very weak and wobbly in the hot white sunshine that poured down upon everything like a motionless universal cataract. Now, uh, motionless universal cataract. Um, the sun is uh, kind of universal, right? It's It uh, glows over everything. But a cataract is, is two things. One is it's a waterfall, especially the part at which, or the part of the waterfall at which the white foam comes and makes the clear water uh, not, no longer transparent. And, of course, a cataract is also so, something that happens to your eyes as you get older, and the UV of the sun 
uh, damages your lenses and makes you unable to see. He passes, uh, he, he gets out of the boat and can no longer see because of the white sun. But what he does see is an amazingly, uh, as you say, uh, Edenic world. And with the beautiful uh, vocabulary he's employing for this, uh, I mean, it doesn't say he's an untutored sailor, but he is a sailor. And I got to tell you, a lot of these vocab words I've never seen before. <laughs> um, and I'm not a, <laughs> I'm, I'm well read. So I, I was um, Im- impressed. Uh, here's, here's another line. Aside from the bizarre looking vegetation, I noticed that there was a queerness about the very sun. It was too high in the heavens for any latitude to which I could conceivably have drifted. And it was too large anyway. And the sky was unnaturally bright and dazzling in incandescent. More, more about the sun. Then this, this uh, line a little later in the paragraph. I was separated from my former life and from everything I had ever known by an interval of distance more irremable than all the blue leagues of sea and sky that, like the island itself, I was lost to all possible reorientation. Irremeable. I think it's pronounced (laughs) irremeable, but... Okay. Irremeable, which means affording no possibility of return. Right. And then I I think you're really right in focusing early in on the, on the, the two reefs and how he's being washed ashore. Later on... Uh, coming uh, at that point where the giant ape that is a god or something that the people of the Uncharted Isle have turned to since their science has failed them um, in sort of a a hope of whatever problem that's... uh, I I assume the uh, imminent sinking of their their, uh, island is is the issue. Um, They turn to the god and they sacrifice a baby. And... One of the great things about seeing seeing this story in the original Weird Tales is there's an illustration, and you see exactly what's going on. The people are handing the the monkey god, the uh, half human, half ape god, a baby, and its hands are upraised, waiting for it, as if two reefs and a baby being thrust ashore, right? Yeah. Um, and and then that's the point, as you point out, where uh, it the story breaks and he again finds himself back in the boat. We know that something something horrible has happened because he can no longer he cannot bring himself as you as you pointed out to really think about what happened to the other sailors. He cannot think about what happened to that baby. But of course, it doesn't have to be a real baby. If he really exactly. committed the murders. The baby is just his way of looking at somebody else doing the evil thing Indeed. that he can't acknowledge he did. That's why this story works on so many levels. Um, it's it's an experience that you can turn to and and say, look, here's a, there's truth here. <laughs> again and again, you can turn and see truth in it, even though it's completely made up. So there's always something more to say. Perfect. 
Nice copper. <laughs> Good story.